If you are an outstanding sportsman or you have made important contribution in the field of academics or other areas, there is a remote possibility, if you belong to the British Commonwealth, that you could receive a magnificent title from the Queen. You could be called, as a man, Lord, so that whenever you walk about or you visit somewhere official, before people pronounce your first name, if your name is John, they just can't come up to you and say, hi, John. They have to address you as Lord John. That's a tremendous title to have. Now, Scripture refers to the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord. But this is not honorific. It is not a title that is conferred by men. It is, in fact, a description of the status that Jesus Christ intrinsically has as a sovereign over life. It is not a title that is conferred, nor a title that can be removed. Jesus Christ in his being is Lord. And that's a point that the Apostle Paul makes in Colossians. I've been working through this book for some time. In chapter 3, the Apostle Paul has stressed the need for Christians who have been transformed to put off the old man And to put on the new man, or the deeds of the old man, and to put on the deeds of the new man. You see that in chapter 3, verse 12 in particular, where there are certain characteristics that are to be emblematic of their lives. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies or compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing with one another, and forgiving one another, if anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so also you must do. But above all these, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. The Apostle Paul is saying, over against the sinful habits that are found in verse 5, fornication, uncleanness, passion, and evil desires, and so on, and found in verse 8, they are to be characterized as new creations in Christ with the characteristics that, of course, are first and foremost found in the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's saying, this is what the new life in Christ should look like. You should be those who are exemplifying compassion and kindness and humility and so on, and love. And he goes on to tell them that in terms of the relationship among themselves, especially among the people of God, That these believers are to live in peace. So he says in verse 15, and let the peace of God rule in your heart. These are believers who are not only to be ruled by peace, but they are to be thankful. And they are to be those who are singing and worshiping God in praise and thanks to him. We find in verse 16 and verse 17, he says, and whatever you do, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And so he's saying that that as believers, not only are they to to show the character of Christ, they must live in peace, they must worship the Lord in gratitude or in thankfulness. But in verses 18 to chapter 4, verse 1, 
we have a set of instructions that are given to believers. A set of instructions that have been known as the household code. Because these are instructions that are primarily given to regulate relationships within the home. Some have called it the hostofel. It just refers to instructions given regarding how they live at home. And it might appear that verses 18 to chapter 4 verse 1 is disconnected from the context. It doesn't seem to be any kind of relationship. There's no joining participle. There's no, nothing there that joins verse 18 to verse 17. But I want to suggest to you that the same idea there of living as new creation is governing the conduct in the home. So he's still pursuing the primary theme saying, this is how you should live. This is how you're to live within the congregation of the church. You see that in verses 15 to 17. But here he's saying, this is how you're to live at home. And I want us to look at this because as new creations is saying, that the, the Christian life must also be exhibited not only in public, but in the privacy of the home. What I want us to look at then is the apostle and his instruction regarding three primary relationships. And I, the relationships, of course, are that of the husband and wife, or the wife-husband relationship, the child-parent relationship, and the slave master relationship. I just want to point out to you that the relationship of slave and master was, is seen as a household code because in the first century or seen as part of the household code because in the first century slaves were part of the family. A family would consist of free men and slaves and the slaves would be the one who assisted in the chores and duties of the home and that is why the family includes this notion of, of slaves and masters. But let me sum up this by saying first that the Apostle Paul would have us understand that believers must live out their identity as the new man in reciprocal relationships. This is, this is very obvious, nothing earth-shattering in this observation. But it is important, but the writer makes it clear that we are to live out our relationship, or live out our identity as the new man, as new creations in mutual or reciprocal relationships. And the first set of relationship that the apostle takes and brings to them is that of the husband-wife relationship. He says in verse 18 and verse 19, Wives, submit to your own husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, Love your wives and do not be bitter towards them. The passage in Ephesians chapter 5, 22 to 33, contains much of this. In fact, in more elaborate description of the husband-wife relationship. But the writer is addressing those who are new creations. And he says, well, how should a wife who has been transformed carry out her duties as a wife? How, what kind of wife should she be? And the Apostle Paul says, 
that a Christian wife, one who has been transformed by the grace of God, ought to submit to their own husbands. Now, of course, there are a number of things here that we need to take a look at. First of all, the term that he uses, upatasso, means to put oneself under. I want you to note that this is not a general call for women to submit themselves to men. It's not what a writer is saying. If you look at the text, it is very clear. Wives, although the same word could be used for women, I think the context makes it clear. Wives, submit to your own husbands. So first of all, it is a call for a wife to submit to her husband. Secondly, though the term upatasa means to put oneself under, it does not in and of itself signifies inferiority. Put otherwise, just because the apostle calls wives to submit to their husband does not mean that wives are inferior to husbands. In fact, in the first century, that was the prevailing view. As we were reminded, uh, Josephus was one who wrote that in all things, women are inferior to men. In all things. And O'Brien points out that one of the prayers in the synagogue goes something like this. And of course, there's only men who can pray a prayer like this. Blessed art thou, O Lord, O God, King of the universe, who has not made me a woman. <laughs> so it was, within the first century culture, the notion was there that women were inferior. But here, the writer says, women are to submit. To wives are to submit to their husbands. does not mean that they are inferior. That intrinsically as people... There is full and absolute equality between a husband and wife. But the scriptures does recognize that while there is equality in essence as people, there is nevertheless a difference in the roles that we play. And so you will find that in the scriptures itself, we are called upon to submit in a vast array of relationships. For instance, we find that we are called upon in Romans 13 to submit to government, to those who are above us. We, should, we shouldn't, as Christians, be anarchists. We may not agree with the government in everything, but it doesn't mean that we should go and burn the town down. It doesn't, we, don't, we may not agree with the government policies, but it doesn't mean that we should not pay our taxes. So the scriptures will tell us that every soul be subject or submissive to the governing authorities. So long as we are not asked to act against Scripture, and against biblical principle, we are called to submit to government. We are to pay our taxes. We are to be good citizens. He says, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. What is it? Why, why, why do we submit to government? It is because it is God who has ordained leaders. Our prime minister may have won an election because of his skill in electioneering, but behind all of that is the hand and will of God. All our leaders, whether we agree with them or not, finally, they are where they are because of divine appointment. 
And thus we are called upon to submit to leaders. You don't have to agree with them. You don't have to hold their policies. You don't have to embrace their views. But you're called upon in the areas that are legitimate to obey. Our Lord Jesus Christ submitted to his parents, we are told. He was submitted, submissive to them. We're told that we're to be submissive to our elders. We find our Lord Jesus Christ. One day we're told we'll be in submission to the Father. So we read in 1 Corinthians 15, 28, Now when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will be subject to him who puts all things under him, that God may be all in all. Everything to everyone. Well, we do, not, we do not infer from this that we are less than the state, that is, we are inferior to the state or we are inferior to politicians. We do not infer from this that, that members of a, a congregation are inferior to spiritual leaders because they are to submit to their leaders, nor do we infer that Jesus Christ is inferior to God the Father. But what we do recognize is that there is a difference in role. In fact, the Apostle Paul will tell us in Galatians 3.28 that there is no difference between Jew and Greek, between bond and free, or male or female, that, that, that there is no superior class in the church of Christ. So we need to understand that when the scriptures call upon wives to submit to their own husbands, it is not an indication of inferiority. But it is also a recognition that God has given us different roles. And the role of the wife is to submit, to support. It calls upon her then, though she's equal in terms of her essence, her function is different. She is to submit voluntarily. Notice, it doesn't say, husbands, make your wife submit. But rather, wives, submit to your own husband. This is a voluntary Voluntary action. It is a wife who determines that she would submit. You see, the, the home is often a place of power play, of competing agendas. One upmanship, one party seeking to get above the other, a place of competing self interest. But the Lord expects that within the Christian home, wives are not to be competitive but cooperative, not to be disrespectful, but deferential, to be submissive in spirit, not seeking to argue and contention, but those who properly seek to carry out their function in a spirit of humility and deference and respect. Wives, submit to your own husbands. And then the Apostle Paul says, as is fitting. In the Lord. And so this whole discussion about a wife's role at home is now placed in a greater context, in the context of the relationship with God. That one submits. And one submits as is appropriate or fitting in the sight of God. It's important. It's important. Before you marry, you need to make sure that you just don't marry based on looks. You need to make sure that when you 
decide you're going to marry, you're going to marry a woman who's not going to be fighting with you all the time. It's not very good to have 40 years, 50 years of fighting. I know that there are a lot of questions that have been asked over the years. What happens if my, what if I marry a, 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 a man who makes it difficult to submit? Because he's a fool. And I refer you to a sermon I preached years ago on, on being married to a fool. There are difficulties. And there are husbands who make it very difficult for their wives to follow. But the scriptures point out to us that, that, that it is the duty, the obligation of wives, Christian wives in particular here, to submit to their husbands as is fitting to the Lord. We're talking about the conduct then that should regulate the home. But secondly, he, he says in this husband-wife relationship that husbands must love their wives and do not be bitter towards them. In a culture where the husband was seen as sovereign, the Apostle Paul addresses husbands. It's very interesting because in the first century culture, there was the belief that women were not worthy to be given moral instruction. They couldn't receive it. They weren't clever enough. They weren't important enough to receive moral instruction. Paul just gave a moral instruction to wives. And the husbands, they were seen as superior, superior, supreme. They did not need instruction. And the Apostle Paul gives instructions to husbands as to how they should relate to their wives. And more than anything else, he does something that is absolutely unique because the Apostle Paul calls husbands to love their wives. Very often, the predominant disposition in the first century was that wives were for wives were for giving legitimate heirs, and concubines were for having fun. That was the predominant disposition. You marry because you want to have legitimate children. But this notion of love was not a part of the bargaining. And the Apostle Paul, in revolutionary terms, called upon husbands to love their wives. Here, in this chapter, the term love is being used first early in verse 12 of God's amazing love for his people. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies. But the writer also reminded them of God's love. He says, as the elect of God, holy, beloved, those who are loved of God. It is in this context, you see, that God loves his children. It is in the context where the Apostle Paul tells them in verse 14, above all things, put on love, which binds all things in in unity, that he calls upon them to love. So, so in other words, the, the imagery that he places before them is the love of God for his people. That becomes the basis of their love for one another and the love for their wives. In fact, in the, in the corresponding text in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul says that husbands are to love their wives as Christ loves the church. It ought to be a sacrificial love, a love in which we put the interests and the concerns of our wives above our own selves. It is the opposite then of self-centeredness. We're living not for our pleasure, but for the happiness 
and the well-being of our wives. That's a command to husbands. Husbands, love your wives. And the writer goes on and he says, and do not be bitter towards them. Paul is not saying that this is the only way a husband ought to love his wife, but he says, in effect, and one of the ways you can demonstrate love is by not being bitter towards your wife. Not being bitter towards them. It means that they are not to be harsh. Their love must transcend merely the emotional or the sexual. And they should display this in one particular way here by not being bitter, not dealing harshly, not being resentful. A bitterness which comes from selfish thinking, which seeks one's interests. He says, you ought to love your wives. And you ought to avoid bitterness of heart towards them. Well, he goes to the second set of relationships. The relationship between a parent and a child. And again, he addresses here, first, the child. He says, children, obey your parents in all things. Obey your parents in all things, so this is well-pleasing to the Lord. He's talking to converted children. Now, I, I think it is very obvious here that it is not referring to children who are under, who are, who, who are not underage. That is, he's not referring to adult children. Because the Apostle Paul is not asking the children who are adults are to obey their parents in all things. It is clearly referring to children who are under the tutelage, under the, the authority of their parents. But here the writer says children are to obey their parents in all things. Now, it does not mean that adult children can just dismiss their parents. They are to respect them. They are to honor them. But particularly those who are home, those who are under the care of their parents, they're called upon to obey. And they're called upon to obey in all things. And of course, that of course has to be placed in proper context. All things that are legitimate, all things that are lawful, all things that are pleasing in the sight of God. It's not a mere call to submit, but a call to obey. We live in an age where the respect for parents is not seen, it's not encouraged. It seems to be archaic, just like wives submitting to husbands, parents submitting, uh, children submitting to, to parents seem to be also archaic. But the scriptures expect that godly children are to listen, to obey, to submit to their parents. And notice what the what is what the scripture says. It says that children obey your parents in all things. Why? For this is well pleasing in the sight of God. It pleases God. It brings pleasure to the heavenly Father. This, of course, is similar to some extent to what he says in Ephesians chapter six, one to three, where he addresses children, where he says, "Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right." And then. He says, honor your father and your mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with you and you may live long upon the earth. There is a difference between parents and children. It is, in our day, it, it seems to me that, 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 that we think that the command is parents obey your children. But the scriptures are clear. We are to be, children are to be obedient to parents. And discipline must be part and parcel of bringing up our children. 
And the reason that children are to be obedient, it is because this is God's will. Then there is a word in this relationship, in this parent-child relationship, there's a word not only to children, but there's a, a word to fathers, and fathers in particular. I don't think it means that wives are not taken into consideration here, but particularly to, hus- to, to pa- husbands and particularly to fathers. Fathers, it says, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Not only, you see, does the child have an obligation to the father, but the father has an obligation to the child. And they're called not to provoke their children, not to arouse them. Now, now, now this is a term that is used by the Apostle Paul. For instance, in, in, in 2 Corinthians 9 verse 2, the term provoke is used where Paul says, For I know your willingness, about which I boast of you to the Macedonians, that Achaia was ready a year ago, and your zeal has stirred up the majority. What Paul, Paul is boasting about the eagerness of these in Achaia to contribute financially for those who were suffering in Judea, who were going through famine. And he says, he says of them, their zeal has provoked the majority, has provoked others to want to contribute, to give. Now, this is a good provocation. Because they were so zealous, willing to give, others were provoked, were stirred up uh, to give. But in this instance here in our text, fathers are told not to provoke their children. That is, in a negative sense. Not to stir them up. There's There's a provocation which is good when we stir people up to imitate what is good. But there is a provocation which is evil. It is when we stir people up, we irritate them and cause them to do the things that are wrong. Well, here, fathers are told not to provoke their children so they become resentful. You see, parental responsibility is not denounced, but parental right must not be abused. Fathers, in particular, are not to provoke. And we can do this in a number of ways, by harshly disciplining our children, by constant criticism. You know, one fellow went to work, and every time there's a discussion about children, and particularly sons, he got very annoyed. And one day he brought it, my son is an idiot, totally useless. And then he carried on. But I guess she, he has his mother's genes. Doesn't say a lot about the child. Doesn't say a lot about his wife. Constant criticism. Constant nagging. Harshness. Will often provoke children to do what at times they had never envisioned doing. And here, Paul is laying down instruction for the home. The converse is that It is a father's job while he disciplines, while he corrects, while he instructs in the ways of God to encourage, to provoke his children to doing what is good, through love and through example. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. That is then the relationship between the parent and child. But then the 
the writer goes on. Paul goes on to the third set of relationships, and that of the master-slave. He says, bond servants obey in all things. That is, in, in terms of the relationship between master and servant. Bond servants obey in all things your masters according to the flesh. Not with eye service as men pleases, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive a reward for the, for, of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. But he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, give your servant, your bondservant, what is just and fair, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. There is, of course, considerable weight given on the relationship between a master and servant. And Paul tells them that it is the duty of the servant to obey his master. Now, there's a lot can be said here, and there's a lot been written about the relationship between masters and slaves. We, what, we must, what we must not conclude from this passage alone is that somehow Paul supports slavery. And I want you to understand that first century slavery and the slavery, at least, that we have seen in the West must not be compared. We don't have time to develop that subject. I think that to a large extent, the Apostle Paul understood that slavery in the first century was an institution that was not going to be changed immediately. And because of that awareness, moved by the Holy Spirit, he, got, he gives them guidelines to, to live in a, in a system that was already unjust. He, do, he does speak elsewhere about if they have the opportunity of, of receiving their freedom, they should take it. So it, 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 it would be a misunderstanding of Paul to suggest that he's somehow in favor of, of slavery. Nevertheless... The Apostle Paul gives instructions. And he tells, in essence, slaves that they are not to seek to ingratiate themselves with their bosses, with their owners, their earthly masters. He says they are obeying all things, not with eye service as men pleasers. They They must not serve seeking to curry favor, but rather... They are to serve, obey their masters with sincerity of heart in the fear of the Lord. They're going to do what they're going to do. They're going to fulfill their obligation to their masters, not because they want to be liked, not because they want to climb the ladder, but because they, they live in the fear of God. They live in the fear of the Lord. He continues to press the relationship. And he says, and whatever you do, do it heartily to the Lord and not to men. And what is he saying? You're not serving, seeking first of all to please men, but you're serving as unto the Lord. Your service in this slavery is unto the Lord. What is he saying? He's saying that you may be physically a slave of men, but you are first and foremost a servant of Christ. And the service you render in this bondage in which you are, is to be given to the Lord and whatever you do, very embracing. In fact, I, as I pointed out recently, similar statement made in verse 17, and whatever you do, a comprehensive statement. And so he says, and whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men. Why? Knowing that from the Lord, as you serve, and serve willingly and gladly in the fear of the Lord, you'll receive a reward of the inheritance, for you are serving, he says, the Lord Christ. Verse 24. 
Rather, he who does wrong, he who does not serve the Lord and does not serve his master properly, he says that there, there will in fact be a day of reckoning where one will receive the reward for what he has done and there is no partiality. In verse 1 of chapter 4, he turns to address masters. And he says, referring to those Christian masters who, for example, in the case of Onesiphorus, where we have in Philemon that relationship, a master like Philemon, he says, Masters, give your bond servant what is just and fair, knowing you also have a master in heaven. By the way, the term here in verse 4, you know, master, it's really lords, human lords. And he says, they ought to treat their servants fairly because they have a master but in heaven. But the term their master is lord. So he's saying, you earthly masters must treat your servants justly and fairly because you who are lords, small l, have a lord, capital L, in heaven. You're under the lordship of Christ himself. So first of all, we notice then that those who are new creations are to live out that relationship in reciprocal relationship. Secondly, why? It is precisely that they are to live out this identity as the new man because they are under the lordship of Christ. I, I hope you have not missed how often in this brief section the apostle Paul refers to the lordship of Christ. And it is not that he merely talks about Christ as Lord here. But throughout this epistle, Paul speaks of Christ as Lord. He begins the epistle this way. In verse 1, he, he begins, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints, and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We read later on in verse 10. He's been praying for them. He says in verse 10 that you may walk worthy of the Lord. Referring to Christ. In chapter 2 verse 6. He says... As you therefore have received Christ the Lord. The Apostle Paul would tell the Corinthians. There are many gods and many lords. But for us there is one God and Father of all. And there is one Lord Jesus. And Paul says you have received Jesus Christ. But you have received Jesus Christ the Lord. Definitive. Because for the Apostle Paul, there is one Lord. There is one who rules and reigns supreme. It is Christ. And so the writer says, you have received Christ as Lord. It's the Lordship of Christ that should govern their conduct. We find the same thing in chapter 3, verse 16. Where he calls upon them. He says, and let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another, in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace or with gratitude in your hearts to the Lord. 
in verse 17, and whatever you do in word or in deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. The writer is emphasizing the lordship of Christ. And so all I'm, being, all I'm pointing out to you is that previous to these verses in verses 18 to chapter 4, verse 1, he's been focused on the lordship of Christ. And by the way, I have mentioned that he's spoken about the lordship of Christ in chapter 1, 15 to 20, where he talks about Christ as supreme. We've gone over this ground this morning, and I'm not going to go back there. But what is essential? Why, why should wives behave the way they should? Why should they be submissive? Why should children obey their parents and slaves serve the Lord, serve their masters the way they do? Why? Why, why should these relationships be conducted in this manner. It is precisely because Paul views Christ as Lord. You see this, for example, in verse three, verse, chapter 3, verse 18, where he says, wives, submit to your own husband, and there it is, as is fitting in the Lord. The reason wives submit to their husbands, it is because it is appropriate for those who are in a relationship with Jesus Christ. Children, in verse 20, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing, it is fitting in the Lord. It is well pleasing to the Lord. And then you come to the relationship between masters and servants and he says to servants in verse 23, and whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord knowing that from the Lord you receive the reward. You serve the Lord Christ. Masters, Give to your bondservant what is just and fear, knowing that you have a Lord in heaven. That fundamentally, what governs the relationship is that we have received and acknowledged Jesus Christ as Lord. That he is absolute. It is because Christ is Lord that our relationships are to be governed by him. This term, Lord, curious, translates Yahweh in the Old Testament. Christ is supreme. He's supreme over all creation. He's supreme over history. And he's supreme over all life, in, including our relationship. And, and, and by the way, the, the writer Paul shows Christ's supremacy by depicting him as in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge in chapter 2, verse 3. He shows his supreme status. He is king. And it is precisely because Christ is Lord that he must govern our relationship. Why is this important? It is important, my friends, that as we seek to display our thankfulness to God, that we live out our identity in Christ in our relationship with one with another. I want to point out just one structural thing here before I draw a conclusion. This, these verses that is, verses 18 to chapter 4, verse 1, fall between two statements on thanksgiving. In verse 17, he says, And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks. In chapter 4, verse 2, he says, Continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. And the implication, I think, necessarily is this. But one of the ways in which we show thankfulness to God and thankfulness to Christ is not merely by singing hymns, which we saw earlier, but one of the ways we, we show thankfulness is by living out our relationship one with another 
in a manner that pleases Christ the Lord. How do I show that I am thankful? How do you show that you're thankful? Well, you seek to live at home in a manner that pleases the Lord. You see, for the Apostle Paul, our relationships must be under the Lordship of Christ. And in fact, all of life ought to be under the Lordship of Christ. We must begin with the presumption that we do not belong to ourselves. This is what the Apostle Paul tells the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He says, Oh, do you not know that your body, your bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you're not your own. You are bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. We do not belong to ourselves. We belong to the Lord. He purchased us, and therefore he has right over every aspect of our lives. And we display that we are under his lordship by living out his requirements in our homes. You see, Christ's lordship then must be more than a theological truth. It must not be confined to mere worship, though that is important. But it must become the dictum of our lives by which we live, that we are under Christ's lordship. It means, therefore, that we are not to allow society to tell us how to be in our homes. We mustn't pick up from talk shows what it means to be a good wife or a good husband. We must understand that we belong to Christ, that we are under him, and that we seek, if we are under Christ, to be the best we can be in our homes. Christian wives are to be the best wives. The world will look at them and say, well, that's just being a doormat. But to the Lord, this is fitting behavior. You marry and remain married, loving your wife for 30 years, 40 years, 50 years. And people are walking around saying, what a waste. Spend all your life with one woman. And there's so many fishes in the sea, you're there with one woman. 40 years. It's a good thing to change wives. You change cars, why can't you change wives? You change suits, why can't you change wives? But we're called to love our wives. And, and part of loving our wives means staying with them even when they're naughty. Even when they don't please us. It means not treading them in for a new model. It means being there for the long run. Why? Because fundamentally, we're under Christ's lordship. It means precisely because Christ has loved us and has given us an example of genuine sacrificial love. We're to love our wives because we are seeking to please the Lord. You see, at the heart of Christian living is a recognition that you do not belong to yourself. That you and I, we belong to Christ. We must be the best wives and the best husbands we can be. We must be the best children. Children who fear the Lord, honor their parents, protect, care for them, humble themselves. We must be the best fathers we can possibly be by instructing our children in the fear of God, by reading the scriptures for them, by educating them in the scriptures, by teaching them. Our children are a mess today, and we blame the school system, but it's not the school system, it's our home. 
we have lost the altar at home. We have given it over to TV and video games. But we are to be people who recognize the importance of raising up a generation in the fear of God. We're going to instruct them in the Lord. We're going to be the best fathers that we can be by encouraging them, by educating them in the ways of the Lord. And if you are a Christian, you're to be the best worker. Your boss shouldn't have a problem with you coming early. You shouldn't be clocking out before the time. You shouldn't be going home with office furniture and stationery. One guy was building his house. Took him 50 years because he went home on his little bike, his little bicycle with one brick a day. We have to be trustworthy. We should be trustworthy because we serve the Lord. And, and yes, there are times that we're going to be unjustly treated. There are times when you're not going to be promoted. There are times when, when you will feel victimized. But you have to know that in all of this, you're serving the Lord who is sovereign, who will make it right. Who will repay the sufferings that you've endured? Now, you, you may be listening and you may say, but you know, none of this applies to me. First of all, I'm not married and I don't intend to get married. Or you may say, well, I'm not a child. I'm not under my parents' supervision. Or you may say, thankfully, I'm not working. Or I'm a student. But the principle applies nevertheless. That in all of our relationships, one with the other, that we are to be people under the control of Jesus Christ who recognize that he is sovereign and supreme and the way we treat one another must be in a manner that pleases Christ. That in all things, in everything we do, we do it as unto the Lord for his praise, for his glory. We must live out the new man in reciprocal Mutual relationships. But we must live out the new man under the lordship of Jesus Christ for his glory. 